To begin this morning, I would like you to go back into the recesses of your memory. Some of you may have to go further back than others, but uh, I'd like you to remember a birthday party that you may have attended when you were a kid. And uh, let's say that you were the, the birthday boy or the birthday girl. You, you may remember what that experience was like. There was a, a certain thrill at being at the center of attention about all of the noise and maybe the music and, and possibly the decorations if you were so fortunate. And, and maybe you remembered that three-layer cake that made you thankful to have a good pancreas. Whatever it might have been. Loved that, right? But do you know what you, what you felt like in that moment, maybe? You felt like a king or a queen. Because... Everybody was there for you. And if you were at Chuck E. Cheese, they even brought out that little paper crown and put it on your head. And, and for those 90 minutes, you were uh, the monarch of all you would survey. You, you had all of these subjects that came just for you, and they all laid before you this wrapped tribute, um, either full of cosmetics or action figures or cards or whatever the case may be, puppies, who knows. They came for you, and you were their sovereign. And in that moment... In that 90 minutes of thrill, you got a taste of power. You got a taste of what it meant to have a little bit of influence or a little bit of the ability to lead. I mean, you, you led your subjects in triumphal procession to the skating rink or to the ball pool or to the horses or whatever it might have been. You were in charge and they all sought audience with you. Oh, can I come over and play with your stuff? Can I spend the night? They all wanted your attention. Eh, that's what you felt. You felt what it's like to have a little bit of power, what it's like to have a little bit of influence, what it's like to lead. And then you get older and you discover that that what felt like child's play is anything but a child's game. And when it comes to power and authority and leadership, you you discover either from history or from your own experience that there are people who have authority that can work as much tyranny as they can work great good. And it was sobering unto you. And then you yourself, when you found yourself maybe in positions of, of some sort of responsibility, whether it was formal or informal, you, you began to feel certain pressures, whether subtle but still potent, pressures about what it meant to lead. And, and in moments like that, you, you realized, I need a little wisdom. I need a little wisdom to know either how to follow somebody that's in authority or, or how to lead if I have authority. And because left to yourself, you'll do it wrong. Well, the Proverbs has a thing or two to say about leadership, explicitly about those we might follow who are in leadership, but I would say also implicitly about what it means to lead. And we're going to consider those passages in the Proverbs that have to do with leadership and authority and influence But I will tell you at the front end that of all the Proverbs you have heard me speak or will hear me speak henceforth, these Proverbs will be the most foreign to your ears. Because these words come out of a context in which there was no idea, no concept of the word commonwealth. Plato would not even start writing about the nation state for 300 years. These words have everything to do with realms, not republics. These words will be unfamiliar. But you know what these words will also be? Potentially very off-putting. You think I'm wearing these red pants because it's patriotic. No, I'm wearing these red pants because I know with this sermon, 
I am on the hot seat. You heard Romans 13. And I heard an audible gasp of the air exiting the room from some of you. Because unless you've been under a rock, those very words have been in public discourse and it's just one more dumpster fire of conversation about what those words mean and their implications. I get it. There's fear and trembling in what I have to say to you today from these passages. I want to speak it real. I want to speak it true. I want to speak it helpful. But I know there's controversy here and that's why I would say to you, by last word of preface, as you listen to these passages, I would like you to listen for one thing. Attention. You've already been introduced to that tension from what you heard in Psalm 118 and what you heard in Romans 13. You've already heard the tension. Now I want you to listen for it again. Because when it comes to how we think about whom to follow and when it comes, about, when it comes to leading when we have the opportunity, you must grapple with attention when it comes to wisdom from the Proverbs and the whole Bible about authority and leadership. If you don't grapple with the tension, you're not ready to follow. If you don't grapple with the tension, you're not ready to lead. It is the way of the text. It is our only way forward. And I hope you will hear that tension as we walk our way through it. And you pray for me while I preach. So if you're able, we're going to stand. We'll start in Proverbs chapter 16. Hear the word of the Lord about leadership. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil. For the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king. And he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death. And wise men will appease it. In the light of a king's face, there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that brings the spring rain. How much better to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding, is to be chosen rather than silver. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster will arise suddenly from them, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. By justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. This is the tension-filled word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you would follow, if you would lead, you must reckon with the wisdom that has a tension to it in the scripture, both in the Proverbs and the whole Bible. And the way you begin to grapple with it is to hear, first of all, the first side of the tension. That is probably more prominent than the other, and therefore we have to grapple with it. Remember the context in which these words are spoken. The Israel began with leadership from heads of tribes, and then in time, to require more organization, they appointed judges, and then eventually Israel gets kings. 
And in every different era, every organizational dispensation of that day, it is God working his will through those forms of leadership. That's, that's his purpose. That's the context in which we write. That's the unfamiliar context from which this is written. But when it comes to the first side of the tension, when it comes to thinking about authority, you have to acknowledge that the conversation begins about authority with a demonstration of respect. Respect for those who are in authority. Not because of who they are, not necessarily because of their CV, of where they've come from. This respect for authority lies in two things. First of all, in what that authority represents. Listen to the very first verse again. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. The word there for oracle, it's the Hebrew word kesem. It refers to the ultimate sort of pronouncement of judgment, of verdict. It refers to the intentions of God on the lips of a king. And therefore, with that authority coming from God, that king, that leader, is bound to speak words that are not against justice. They represent God's authority. That's where the respect, first of all, comes in what that authority represents. And that you hear again two verses later in verse 12. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. In so many words, it's saying this. If you offend him who seeks to do the will of God, you are offending not only the king, you are offending all that's good. If it is in God's name that that person has that authority and represents it, then for you to offend them is to offend God. That's the nature of this respect and where it comes from. And, and right now, I recognize that there are potentially many of you in this room who, if not actually, are metaphorically squirming in your chairs. Because I know full well, on Wednesday, what are we remembering when this nation cast off tyrannical kings who represented their own interests and not the interests of those over whom they were entrusted. I know full well that you know full well that there have been kings who have worked their power to oppress and even to murder. Are those things true? Absolutely. But for the sake of argument, at this moment, shh, sit with me. Stay with the argument. Stay with the conversation. Here are two other passages from there early in 16. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. If I could paraphrase those words, I might say that what it is this. Speaking what is a delight to God should also be a delight to a king that that king is inspired by the righteousness of God and therefore is glad, glad, pleased to hear those who would speak what is true. And therefore, in the same way that Lord, it's said, shows his favor, shines his face upon a people he wishes to bless, that is also the nature of a king. And where therefore they are worthy of that respect. In fact, that word favor, the favor of a king is the same Hebrew word that speaks of the favor of God. They're interchangeable. They're interlocking. They go together. And so the respect for authority begins with an understanding of what that authority represents. 
not only of what it represents though, but of what that authority is responsible for. Listen to just a few words about what is the mandate of one called to that version, to that right to authority in chapter 20, verse eight, where it says this, a king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. By justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. That's the calling of one invested with authority. That's the calling of one who's entrusted with a certain measure of responsibility that no one else has to to stamp out what acts of evil and their intent that they can. To to act with justice at all times and without self-interest. To to act on behalf of those who are defenseless and voiceless and friendless. That's the mandate of those invested with authority from God. That's their calling. That's their mandate. And implicit within that sense of the mandate, implicit within that sense of why they are to be shown respect, is what you heard the, um, the, the sage say in chapter 8, verse 12, or by verse 15. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. It's this idea that God has a hand in those who are in responsibility. Whether they have an interest in Israel's interests, or they have an interest in something else. But God is not sort of over here, aloof, at a distance between what human, response, human authorities are and what he is about. He has a hand in it. Which is why, in part, why Paul says what he does in Romans 13. God has a hand in it. Because God is what? Interested in their good. Did you hear that? Those authorities are out for your good. And that is why we would rest in the idea that God has an interest in those who are in authority and therefore why those authorities deserve respect. That's where the conversation begins. That's one side of the tension. If you don't start there, you aren't prepared to grapple with what it means to follow or what it means to lead. But the conversation doesn't stay there. There's the other side of the tension. Yes, these texts and the whole Bible speak of an implicit respect for those who are in authority because of the authority they represent and the authority they're responsible for. But we're also called to a very reasonable caution. Even a suspicion. And you hear that put rather aptly there in 16, 14, and 22. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. The sages there are knowing full well and saying unequivocally that they know what happens when you give some people power. That they can be motivated to act irrationally and impulsively in a malevolent way that works a malevolence to others' destruction. And you heard that also when it says in 29.2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. Anyone with authority, anyone with influence, anyone who leads is capable of wreaking as much havoc 
as they are rooting out harm. And until you are aware of that, you are not able to grapple with the wisdom that's necessary. When Jesus, in Luke chapter 13, is, is sort of speaking openly about what he's up to, you know what he says? He says, tell Herod, that fox, what I'm up to. Now, when you and I use the word fox, we usually think that means the word clever. In a, in a Hebrew idiom, to speak of someone as a fox is to speak of them as one who is deceiving in a way that leads to others' destruction. What does that say about Jesus' category for ridiculing those with authority? Ridiculing those with authority who misuse that authority in a way that is cunning and deceitful and destructive. These words, this Bible is not a puff piece about those in authority. And if you're hearing it as such, you are not listening. This text calls us to, first of all, a proper respect, but also then a reasonable caution because God has an interest in those who leads and therefore what these passages are out to tell us here is that if in fact authority finds its origin and its legitimacy in God, then guess what? Sometimes those people need to be reminded that they are accountable to him for it. That's the tension. You want to think about following? You want to think about leading? You've got to grapple with the implicit respect that we give, but also the reasonable caution that we must apply. So, okay, therein lies the question then, all right? So the Proverbs are saying sometimes there are leaders that you should be respectful of, and sometimes there are leaders you should be cautious of. Do they say, good luck with that, have fun? Any more help? Any help? Yes. In fact, there's a little help even in those first several texts you heard from chapter 16. And um, you may remember if you hear the, the first week of the sermon series that if you read the Proverbs um, in large part, it's, it's as if um, the, the little kid that was the courier for the Proverbs on his way to the editor kind of had the box all nicely arranged and then he trips on a rock and everything goes flying and lands on the ground and he doesn't have time to rearrange it. Because um, it doesn't feel like there's any rhyme or reason to why some of these Proverbs are smushed up against each other. In this passage, though, you get the impression that maybe the kid took at least five minutes to rearrange some of them. Because in this passage, there are two texts that have absolutely no reference to the word king, but have everything to do and every part of relevance to what it means to lead or be led. And the first one comes there at the end of the litany of chapter, 10's, of chapter 16's verses there in verse 16, which you've heard before. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Why would you put that there at the end of a litany about leadership? I'll tell you why. Because what distinguishes a leader that you might respect from a leader that you might be properly suspicious of is where their curiosity leads them is whether they are still interested in learning. It is whether they are curious about what is true and good and excellent and that they might even consult with ideas from outside their camp. That is a voice that you might totally disagree with but might necessarily have a respect for because they're still curious, because they value wisdom more than anything else that they might gain, even their own power. The Proverbs are out to help us make a discernment between whether the, the person is worthy of respect or of caution. And verse 16 kind of helps us in that regard. That one makes sense. Now, verse 11, ugh, 
What's he doing with that? Listen to verse 11 again. Again, smushed in between a bunch of texts about leadership. Verse 11. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. (laughs) Wait, what? Okay. Fast forward. Every single time you've ever pumped gas, there on the pump was a little sticker. And that sticker said, North Carolina Department of Weights and Measures. And it had a little dot where they most last checked that pump. And what did they check that pump for? To make sure that one gallon was really one gallon. Because imagine the kind of profit that Ingalls could make on charging you for a gallon of gas, but only giving you three quarters of a gallon. They want to make sure a gallon is a gallon. Boom. Guess what? Israel had the same concern. Weren't worried about fuel. They were worried about that three ephahs of grain would really be three ephahs of grain. And so they had this bag and they established weights and they established measures and everything was measured by that index. And you think, what does that have to do with leadership? I think it's a reasonable deduction. That verse is among these verses to say this. A standard of measure, a standard of weight, implies a subscription to an authority that is fixed and that is an authority that is not of you. And therefore, I think the proverbialist puts that text in these texts about leadership to make this point, authority is always derivative. Authority is always in submission to something higher than oneself. And that's why you need a standard, a bag of weights and measures by which even the king must subscribe to. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has that encounter with the Roman centurion who comes to him and he says, man, my servant is sick. He's dying. Would you heal him? Just, just would you heal him? And Jesus says, hey, I'll come to your house. Centurion says, no, 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 no. I, I am not worthy for you to be under my roof. And then that centurion looks Jesus in the eye and he says, for I too, like you, am a man under authority. I say, man, go and he goes. I man to say, come and he comes. And what does Jesus do in that moment? It says Jesus marveled. And he says, I have not seen so much faith in anyone in the house of Israel. What does he mean by that? Jesus hears in that centurion's understanding that that centurion gets it. That centurion gets Jesus. That Jesus, just like that centurion, is a person under authority. He listens, he goes, he runs, what? At the direction of his father. I don't do anything that my father isn't telling me to do or showing me to do, it says in John's gospel of Jesus. Jesus is a person with authority, but is a, Jesus is also a person under the father's authority. And therefore, what distinguishes a person or a leader whom you might respect and one to whom you might have a proper suspicion is to ask them this, to whom are they in under authority? Are they in submission to anything other than their own ego? That is the mark of a leader. That is the way in which you discern whether or not they to be trusted, respected, or had held in suspicion. Whom do you follow? How do you lead? You've got to grapple with that tension. It's the only way forward. Okay, fine. How does that look in practice? Because I know we're, we're, we're still living up here in the abstract, right? So what does it mean to grapple with that tension, both in whom you follow, and how you lead. Let, let's, let's talk about how it works out in whom you follow. Because when it comes to whom you might follow, you and I are, are um, 
uh, liable to two temptations. Um, uh, the first one is to be so smitten with those with authority and influence uh, that we you know, ingratiate ourselves or we, we turn a blind eye to any number of other things and we just sort of think they can do no wrong and we're just sort of smitten with it. We love that. And, and then the other temptation is to really be absent from the whole thing. We just sort of divorce ourselves from it and we kind of let it go and say, that's their problem. Here's my world. Uh, uh, my family would go down to uh, a little town north of Waco, Texas every fall. Um, it's, a, it's this wonderful farm um, and they grow all their own stuff and everything you eat was grown by them and you, and you make boats and you paint them and you go play fun games and everybody that lives there is wearing the hoop skirts. It's the closest thing to an Amish community in Texas you'll ever find. But they come from that same theological tradition that says this. You know what? This is our world. That's that world. And never the twain shall meet. We will not be involved. It's a strong Protestant tradition that likes to think of itself as this is our world. That's their world. And you know, never the twain shall meet. Here's the thing, though. What does Jesus pray for in his seminal prayer? Thy will be done, O Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we don't have the luxury of kind of saying, yeah, the world, our world. Their world is our world and we're in it. So what does it take to thread that needle about respect and caution when it comes to whom you might follow? When it comes to the, the regard part, the respect part, the, you got to realize the irony of these proverbs. Um, they're written in a season in which there is no Israelite that is unfamiliar with the idea that there were no good kings in Israel. The, the joke on the ordination exam when you study to become a pastor is you stand up there and then some smart aleck will say, um, yes, sir, would you please name me two good kings of the southern kingdom after the divided kingdom? And if that person begins to answer the question with a couple names, he goes, ah, sir, there were no good kings. Trick question, which I know is just as funny as it sounds then. Um, <laughs> ha, 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 keep your day job. Nobody who wrote the Proverbs down had any, you know, sort of fantasy about, you know, these wonderful kings because just read the Old Testament. Even David, the man after God's own heart, we know his backstory and they did too. Why then in the world do the Proverbs and even the Psalms and other places speak so glowingly of kings? I'll tell you why. It's a little bit of a borrowed phrase, but I think in part it's because these sages still had a political imagination for what could be for those who would use their influence fully committed unto who the Lord is and to work for his purposes. They still had a belief that it was possible to work with humility, to act with care and compassion, to defend the voiceless, the weakling, the weakest, and the friendless. It still had a political imagination for that. And therefore, even if they had no kings that embodied that idea, they still had a hope. And I think for you and for me, even though we have, we, we've left kings behind there's still this idea that if you and I are going to operate with this respect for authority, that we must not lose our political imagination for those who might lead in ways that are beautiful, in ways that 
embody the very mandate that you've already heard when it comes to respecting those who are in authority. Respect for those in power means we have to subscribe to a holy kind of imagination that leads us to hope in and to pray for and to advocate for those who might work in a way that's consonant with glory and beauty. Ken Burns did that... um, that documentary around the Roosevelts a few years ago, and, and you may remember the moment in which, uh, in telling um, of the moment in FDR's life after he's died, and the cortege makes its way from Warm Springs, Georgia, and uh, he is lied in st- laid in state on April 15th of 1945. Um, Ken Burns does nothing to conceal the frail, flawed, and unfaithful parts of FDR's story. It's there, and he doesn't make any bones about it. But on the day that um, FDR uh, went to the Capitol building to lie in state, um, he tells the story of a journalist who was there covering the event, and that journalist notices a man watching the casket go by and is spontaneously moved to fall to his knees and in tears, at which the journalist goes up to that man and says, Sir, did you know the president? And the man said, Oh, I, I didn't know him, but he knew me. There's a way of wielding authority in such a way that, yeah, you may never have met him, but somehow they know you. And with the capacity and potential for that sort of political leadership, it is reasonable to express your respect for those in authority by believing that is possible. Believing it is true. Believing in part why Paul says in Romans 13, respect those who are in authority because they really can work on behalf of the Lord even if they have no interest in his purposes. That's how respect works out. What about caution though? There's a time for caution. A time for principled caution in which you call out, in which you reprove, in which you, in which you confront. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, um, was in Germany uh, prior to the ascendancy of Adolf Hitler, and, and then he comes to America and, and, and uh, worships in black churches in, in Brooklyn for years and is just sort of moved and transformed by what he finds there. And then as, as World War II is beginning to um, heat up, he realizes, I cannot stay here. I have to go back home. And he realizes in the midst of that um, awful time that there are moments in which you must act. There are moments in which you must offer a principled resistance. And he says in 1943, at times it becomes necessary not just to bandage the victims under the wheel, but to put a spoke in the wheel itself. And he was that spoke. And he died on the gallows two weeks before World War II was over. Martin Luther King Jr., said this of unjust laws, I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. That there is a form of caution, a form of suspicion that expresses itself in a form of resistance that actually is believing in something beautiful and higher. And so I've already said this once, and I'm going to say it again. If, in fact, the authority of a leader derives in its origin and its legitimacy from God, then it is appropriate at times to remind them that they are accountable to him. Caution expresses itself in that way, in manifold ways. That's, 
That's how you, that's how you wrestle with this tension when it comes to whom you might follow. But, but how do you wrestle with that tension when it comes to your own leadership? Now, I know all of these passages are talking about people at the highest levels of authority. We're talking about kings here, right? This is, this is kings. But folks, I hope you would hear that, that the, the principles that are being articulated here is as just applicable in, in the unsung, invisible, lowest places of those with authority. You, you can be a dad or a mom. You can be a principal or a teacher. You can be a shift manager or an attorney general. And it matters how you grapple with this tension. And whatever form of authority you find yourself in, whether it's formal or informal, whether it's known or unknown, there are two temptations that you have to grapple with. The one temptation is to dominate, to let your authority go to your head, to become unmoored by anything higher than yourself that directs your steps, to think that your authority in some sense is the measure of your worth and therefore you will do everything to hold it, keep it, or expand it. That's the will to dominate. And we are tempted, all of us, whatever authority we might have, whether you are a mom or a manager. And therefore, in that temptation, you and I are in need of humility. But there's another temptation too when it comes to having authority or having the opportunity to lead. It's not to dominate, it's to abdicate. It is to see what leadership requires, to realize that there is a cost involved in seeing that come to fruition, and yet realizing that there's a consequence that might come down on your head, and you lack the courage to suffer the consequence. Our temptation is to abdicate when given the opportunity, and in that moment, we're in need of seeing the privilege of being able to lead. So, whether you're following or whether you're leading, how then do we both live within that tension and avoid those temptations? Because I know right now it's like, forget it. Why try? Where we land this plane is where we find our motivations to live within the tension and avoid those temptations. And I think we could land this plane in what happens in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus is on a walk with his boys and their mom. James and John's mom walks up to Jesus and sort of in so many words says, hey, could my boys sit at your right hand when you come into your kingdom? I mean, this is mom asking for cabinet level positions for her boys. Like any good mom would want to, right? Like, you know, throw me a bone, Jesus. And Jesus looks at her in so many words. This is the paraphrase, right? Jesus says, I don't think you know what you're asking. And James and John settle up and they say, oh, we do, we do. And in so many words, Jesus says, look, I don't have a problem with you asking about authority. There's nothing wrong with desiring to be in authority. But I do want to challenge your concept of what authority and leadership is. And so he says there in Matthew 20 to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In three verses, Jesus articulates his ethic of leadership. What does it mean to lead? It means to serve. It means to be interested in the welfare of those who have been entrusted to your authority. It means that you are willing to sacrifice yourself for their good. 
And if you are not interested in that, you have no business leading. And if you like the idea of being associated with those who are at the front, which is what leadership often comes with it, you better be okay with being not known and being at the back of having no reputation, even though those who are in authority have a reputation. If that ain't your MO, you don't know what it is to lead. That's Jesus's ethic of leadership. But what he asks of anybody who would lead, he lays upon his own heart too. Because there in the last verse of the text, he explains that ethic by his own example. He will lay down everything for those he's come to serve. Everything. He doesn't ask of anybody what he isn't willing to do himself. And in that moment, dying and rising and ascending into heaven, he becomes what? A king. And he distributes his authority through all those who would consider him to be king. But he became king by being a servant, by emptying himself of all that he found valuable, that he might make us new. That's how he leads. And who does he do that for? Who does he do that for? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Who did he die for? He died for sinners who were enemies that they might become friends who are also children of God. He becomes king over them. And by his blood, he forges a new nation in which anybody who comes to him by faith might become proper citizens. They receive a citizenship that has nothing to do with their merit, their talent, their skill, their prowess, their pedigree. It has everything to do with his choice. They are citizens by his work and not our own. That's the gospel. They become citizens of a people that are liberated from a tyranny that is deeper than anything a human king or president could ever free you from. Folks, your deepest tyranny has nothing to do with your socioeconomic level or your political disenfranchisement. Your deepest tyranny has to do with what is within and what contends with what is beyond and invisible. And Jesus, in his kingship, has come to address that and make you new citizens of a new kingdom, a kingdom that therefore means to see the kingdom of heaven come true on the kingdom of the earth. With that as your citizenship, with that as your identity as citizens, that invites you to two sets of questions when it comes to either following or leading. When it comes to following, I think these words might invite us to ask these questions. Have you become so cynical that you're now disengaged from the whole shebang? Friends of mine, theology is irreducibly political. If what he wants on earth finds its origin in what is true of heaven, then to be disengaged or to be cynical wholly and forever is to miss the opportunity. Gandhi said, look, 
those who think religion and politics don't mix, they don't understand either of them. If you would follow, you must ask yourself if you've become so cynical that you're disengaged, or you might have to ask yourself, have you become so enchanted by those with power that you have forgotten what that power was for? That's what it means to wrestle with attention. And when it comes to leading, whatever form that comes in, unsung, small, short-term, long-term, forever, the question you have to ask yourself is, do you see yourself as one who represents God in whatever you do to lead? And do you see yourself who in some way and to some degree acts on behalf of him, whether you're a mom, a dad, a teacher, a shift manager, or anything? These are the questions we must ask ourselves if we would lead. These are the questions we must ask ourselves if we would follow. Look, we started with Chuck E. Cheese. I'll end with Chuck E. Cheese. That crown they put on your head, it was made of paper. And within about an hour and a half, maybe you got it home, but within a day, it was trampled and forgotten. And that is true of every human authority on this earth. The grass withers, the flower fades, and so does every authority. Do you see any authority in this world like that? Because you need to, and I do too. But that, that same hat they gave you, they gave it to you. It was given. And your authority in that time was bestowed. As a leader, do you see yourself as any authority you have as authority that you were given? And if you do, for what reasons was it given you? Happy Fourth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.